Welcome to the Filling the Pell podcast. I am delighted to be joined by Emily Hanford, a senior correspondent with APM Reports, that's American Public Media, uh, who you'll no doubt know from her reporting on the teaching of reading. Welcome, Emily. Hi, I am happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, I think it was a few years ago that you started to become interested in reading instruction. Can you tell me uh, what prompted you to set out on that journey? Yeah, it depends on where I want to start with this one. I've been a reporter for a long time, and I've been an education reporter since 2008. And I, I've always been doing long form stuff. So like one story always leads to another. And so I could take this back, you know, many years to tell you how I got here. But, but let me I'll say this, which is that I didn't know anything about this a few years ago, five years ago, how kids learn to read, how reading is taught in school. I knew a little bit just from my experience with my own children some sort of vague frustrations through the experience of my own children, but nothing major. Um, and I really, most of the reporting that I had done in education was primarily focused at on older students, like secondary, post-secondary, preparation for post-secondary, because the things that I'm most interested in as a journalist and as an education reporter in particular are about like, equity and opportunity and the extent to which education does or can or, or doesn't provide opportunities for people and allow people to go from, uh, to change their lives, honestly. And I really kind of thought this, that story was at the secondary and post-secondary level. And so what happened is I was, um, I mean, this is taking it maybe further back than I had intended, but I was actually doing so like back in like 2016, so four years ago now, I was doing reporting on remedial education in college. I don't know if you guys call it that in Australia. We also call it developmental education is the sort of more um, palatable term. Yeah. But essentially it's, you know, here in the United States, we have an extraordinary number. I mean, at some colleges, it's 60, 75, 80% of students who are going to college. They've graduated from high school and they've basically been told the next step is college and you're ready for college because you have a high school diploma. Yeah. And then they get to college and they get put in these classes. So through that experience, I was just interviewing a lot of people who were um, young adults, um, older adults even, who were telling me about their struggles with reading. And I came across one woman in particular, a few different people who told me that they had dyslexia and I didn't know anything about dyslexia. I didn't have any personal experience with it or anything. And um, I had this one experience with this young woman named Sarah, who we just did this many hours long interview where she told me about how difficult learning to read was and how she never really learned to do it. Gosh. No one really daughter. She had a sister who was a little bit older than her. She, she kind of went through this extraordinary story about how she coped, basically, like how she got through school and life with really having a really hard time with written language. So anyway, I won't say too much more about Sarah, but I, I just got interested in learning disabilities in general. And just this question of whether or not part of the problem here in the United States with all these people who are going to college and need this remedial help is did they have learning disabilities that no one identified, that no one dealt with? Because part of the story of Sarah, she's from a like working class family. She had sort of a traumatic family in a lot of ways. There, weren't, there wasn't family around who could really notice that or help her sort of in terms of time and resources of money. So there was, she, she never got any help and yeah. she didn't get help from school and she didn't get help. 
So I just got really interested in that. And then, so what happened is I, I, I quickly learned that um, when you start looking at learning disabilities, the most frequent by far thing that people have trouble with is reading. And um, I started, I had this experience as a journalist that I've kind of never had before, which is I started calling parents of kids with dyslexia. Yeah. And they told me the same story, <laughs> like all over. At first I thought I was talking to parents in some school districts that's really messed up. Yeah. And then that, well, it must be a really messed up state. And then I started calling other states. And pretty soon I talked to people in a dozens of dozen states and they all had the same issue. And these were mostly middle and upper middle class families in some of our country's best schools, so-called. And they had done everything right. There were tons of books in their house and they had read lots to their kids. And, yeah. you know, but their kids, first grade, second grade, third grade, mom was going to the school and saying something's going on. And they were getting the same answer, which is, don't worry, it'll be fine. Read to him more. You must not have read to him enough. Uh, we've got, you know, we've got some interventions over here. We're going to give him. He's making progress. Mm. And, you know, and the parent knows something isn't right. So I guess what, what, what happened is I just realized, like, there's a systemic issue here. Um, I don't know how big this issue is, but I'm hearing literally the same stories. And it was, you know, I, a number of parents just talked to me about the emotional toll yeah. on them and their children. And the number of parents who've told me that they had eight, nine, 10 year old kids who said to them that they want to die, that they want to kill themselves Gosh. because they can't read. And I just thought, wow, this is kind of big. Anyway, what really happened is that there's a quite of an active movement here in the United States of parents, largely mothers, who are um, fighting for their dyslexic children to get the kind of help they need in school. And what became very clear very quickly um, is that this is this is that the, the kids with dyslexia, so-called, are like canaries in the coal mine. That the bigger issue here is that just in general. There are exceptions, but the way that reading is taught in this country is it's not really taught. Kids aren't really taught how to do it. And so the consequence of that is some kids end up doing fine because they don't need much instruction or they get the help they need because they have parents who notice and who can give them that help. Teach them themselves, pay a lot of money for tutors or private schools. So I just, I, I immediately, you know, two things, just the, 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 the dyslexia moms, as I call them, were the ones yeah. that really pointed out to me that there's a huge amount of research on reading. There's a huge amount that's known just about how, what reading is and how people learn to do it and why kids struggle. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Because when you go into schools, again, this is an overgeneralization, but the attitude is a little bit like, it's kind of a mystery. We're yeah. not quite sure, you know, and it's like if you do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you have a good library and you give a little intervention and you have enough guided reading groups and you motivate the kids, it's kind of like eventually poof magic, yeah. the kids become readers. And as you know, what the research shows is that happens for some kids, yep. <laughs> but half or more, it doesn't happen for. It's, and it yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting you should say that. The, the, the thing in the story that I've heard a lot that you just said is um, that kind of emotional 
um, ride that the, the parents go on where the school says, oh, well, you mustn't have been reading enough to your kids or you need, need more books. Uh, I put a tweet out uh, a few days ago um, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I think I was talking about poor reading instruction. And a principal sort of challenged me, didn't really like the fact that I'd characterized put that there was this thing called poor reading instruction and, and said, you know, if kids are struggling to read, there needs to be conversation with the school and um, parents need to read to their child and, um, and that sort of thing, which, which is a common response. And the dyslexia mums <laughs> came in on this uh, thread with this principal and were absolutely furious um, about it. Um, and it's, it seems a really common story that, that, that the parents get this kind of guilt tripped, like, oh, your child's not learning to read. Well, that's not our fault as the school, even though that's our job to teach them to read. Uh, you must not have been doing enough with them at home. Absolutely. I mean, I think, so, so what happens is that if a kid isn't reading, one of two things usually happens. The parents get blamed. You must not have been reading to them enough at home, or the kid must have a disability. The kid must have dyslexia. And I think that's one of the tricky things about this dyslexia movement. You know, the, the difference between a kid who has dyslexia and a kid who wasn't taught how to read, and they're just not going to be able to figure it out very well without better instruction, is a tricky thing to disaggregate, right? And so what you see here in the United States is it's much more common for white kids in our better schools to get identified with dyslexia. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean they get the help they need in school, but they're much more likely to sort of get that label, which can be helpful. I mean, in some schools in the United States, it really can be one of the only ways to access sort of direct and explicit instruction because the philosophy that guides education in general is that it should be the opposite of yeah. direct and explicit. Yeah. Um, so what, so, but you know, like, it, so it's like, we need to kind of like flip the script on this one though. It's like the assumption is that if you're read to enough and you don't have a disability, you'll become a reader as long as you're in an environment that, and it could be the school environment that encourages yeah. that. And the truth is that will work for some people, but the assumption is that that'll work for most. And that if that, if that doesn't work for you, if being in the right, in, if being in a good school environment where reading is encouraged and you get a little bit of guidance and you get some mini lessons and you get a little bit of this and maybe a little bit of phonics and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, it should all add up to reading. It's really the other way around. It's like that is when that is the way that reading instruction is structured, reading instruction is sort of fundamentally tilted in favor of the few. Yeah. The few who don't need much instruction, their brains are just going to figure it out, or the few, literally the few, who are affluent enough where it doesn't actually matter how school teaches them because someone is going to make sure yeah. they get the teaching they need, even if it costs them tens of thousands of dollars, which it does in some cases. And that is a system that is just fundamentally like reproducing inequality. <laughs> I, I mean, it's creating inequality and, repro and, and produce, yeah, reproducing it. I think one of the things that is hard to grasp is that statistical argument. So uh, if you make the case, say, for explicit phonics instruction, uh, often people will argue with you. They'll say, yeah, but I learned to read without 
phonics or, or my child learned to read without explicit phonics teaching. And that's almost the, that's the argument. Oh, well, you don't need it. Well, no, you don't, not everyone does, but if we use explicit phonics instruction, more kids will learn to read than if we don't. And it's that relative bit that I think maybe as humans, we kind of struggle with because we, we think in case studies, we think in individuals who we have known and we struggle to imagine, you know, 60% versus 80% learning to versus 90% learning to read. Um, and I, I, and I, th that's a particular issue, I think, for this discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> it is, it is an issue for this. And I had something that you just said that I was going to say something I completely lost my train of thought. So ask me another question, it'll come back to me, but it was about that. Well, what, what are the main things that you learned? So when you started out on this journey, um, what were the, what were the, the, the things that you learned fairly quickly, but that were perhaps a bit surprising to, to someone coming at this from the outside? Wait, can I just tell you the thing I, yeah, yeah, I was just about sure. to say? Okay. Because so even the people who say, well, I learned without phonics instruction. Yeah. So one of the things I like, I, I don't thoroughly trust people who tell me with passion how they learn to read. Cause I don't know that anyone can really remember that no. well. Right. And we also know that, um, the amount of sort of direct sort of teaching of the, the teaching of the code that there are a lot of kids who are read to a lot and their parents point to things and sound things out that that's actually a lot of te teaching that's going mm. on. So there's a lot of ways that parents interact with their children naturally when reading books that I think does that for them. Yeah. But the other thing that I think is really important to recognize, and I think this has something to do with why we particularly fight about reading in the English speaking world. I mean, not only in the English speaking world, but it does seem like we have, a special status as Americans, Australians, New Zealand, <laughs> yeah. the Brits, right? Yeah. We have like a particularly big fight about this. Yeah. And I think it's because English, written English is hard to learn, yeah. right? So like a typically developing reader, someone who does not have any disabilities, whose brain, you know, is average going to take to this, is still going to take them a few years to sort of really understand the basics of written English and the graphing phoneme correspondences and how it works, right? So yeah. like a kid, if a kid is starting to be taught in kindergarten here in the United States, it might be the end of second grade until that kid is really off and doing the stuff that we know from the research, they're really like doing the statistical learning and the self-teaching, yeah. right? They're off and running. All you need, what you need to be doing now is like getting that kid to just read a lot. Um, so one of the things I think we miss even for, for kids who do kind of get this in time, and I would say this was actually true of my children, um, that they, they could have learned it earlier and they yeah. could have, like, it's not very efficient the way. So like, there's just yeah. a lot of inefficiency, even for those kids who do get it, there's like a decent amount of wasted time. And of course you get pushback from the child center people. It's like, you know, it's not good to teach kids to read when they're five, but what we know is that kids can learn yeah. to read when they're five. And we also know from personal experience and from research that a lot of kids love to learn to read. Yeah. It's so exciting. When, I mean, I kind of remember that of being a little kid. I mean, that's the thing you have to do when you come to school. You already know how to talk. You know the, the you know your spoken language. Some kids in a fairly sophisticated way, actually. But what you don't know, for the most part, is this whole written code thing. And when you start to be able to read those words, it's like oh, such a great feeling. It's so empowering. And I feel that way about my own children who did eventually, they're very good readers and they're yeah. teen, one's 20 and one's 17. But um, it, like they weren't really taught how to do it. 
And I think it would have been much better if they were taught how to do it. Yeah. And I think it just, the whole thing would have been more efficient. All that stuff we know about the reciprocal nature of word reading and knowledge and um, vocabulary development yeah. and spelling. I mean, spelling, oh. like, right? So many people who are like, I'm a fine reader, but I can't spell. And it's like, oh, you, there's something you are really missing about your written language. And it's yeah. too bad. Probably no one really ever taught it to you. Well, absolutely. And, and it's one of these things that um, I, I, I can't point to the evidence. Maybe it is out there, but I suspect that kids who do intuit how to read, um, that they struggle more with spelling and they're not going to learn. Like we have, we have a very explicit uh, phonics program at my place. And once you've got through the original bit of uh, decoding, um, a lot of the lessons are around morphology and etymology. And, um, and they're really spelling uh, lessons, essentially. And, and uh, the guy that developed the program, he, he sees them as uh, flip sides of the same coin. The other thing I'd say, I, I, you hear a lot, um, and this is quite... Um, you, you write about English. It's got what researchers call this deep orthography. It's... It's really hard to, it, it, it's got, because it borrows from so many different languages, um, it's got so many different um, graphing, phoneme correspondences and working them all through and figuring out what's going on. And which makes it exciting and fun, yeah. which is almost why, like, there's this, there's this idea that there's something sort of technical about it, but English is kind of cool. It's yeah. got all these, like, layers to it. There's all this history in it. Like, why is that word spelled that way? Well, most words have a reason. There, there's a story behind why they're spelled that way. And that's one of the things that kind of frustrates me in this whole debate, because I think this idea of teaching kids their written language, that is fun. Like yeah. there, there is nothing technical and dry and drill and kill and worksheety and boring about that. Written language is like amazing. And written English is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you can make it dry, but you can make yes. anything dry. But the, the point I was going to make is when people say, oh, in Finland, children don't start school till they're seven. And, and why are we, and they just play. And it's this utopia where children just play and it's all just play. And you think, well, okay, Two points. Firstly, in Finland, uh, Finnish has a very shallow orthography. So the relationships between graphemes and phonemes are very straightforward and consistent. Uh, so it's easier to learn. Uh, and secondly, quite a lot of kids, when they start school at seven, can already read because of this. So we're not, we can't say, let's take what Finland do and use that as a model for what we should do in Australia or America or the UK, because we're dealing with a different thing here. Absolutely. That point does not get made enough. <laughs> so going back to um, my point, what, what did you, um, when you first started out, I'm interested in this, um, you know, the idea of, of someone who has, hasn't been immersed in this stuff, discovering it for the first time, and investigating for it for the first time. What were some things that you learned that really stood out that, that, that struck you as surprising? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. You got to go back and like, where, what were the things that were so surprising? Well, I think like I already said, I, I, the initial shock was just discovering the vastness of the evidence base, honestly. Yeah. And, and having this feeling from my time as a parent and my time kind of as a reporter and even when I, that, that really this idea that sort of within schools, and again, I'm overgeneralizing here, but like within schools, it feels like there's a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot of materials. There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of ideas. There's various interventions. There's all this stuff. But sort of when you like drill down a decent amount of it, it's kind of like, what's, what's 
what's at the core here? And when you strip it all away at the core is kind of like reading just happens. Yeah. It just kind of happens. And then some people need some help and we're not really quite sure how to help them in some cases, which is kind of what's going on in a lot of schools in the United States. So that was the thing that was most shocking to me. I was like, whoa, wow, wait a minute. Whoa, there's so much known about this. Um, so that's the shock. I think that's the thing that's kept me going. And then, yeah. you know, honestly, the, the thing that's really kept me going, I mean, in addition to just hearing from so many parents who still reach out to me all the time, hearing from adult struggling readers, that has, I mean, really, that's how I started, right? I, I had this yeah. interview with Sarah and I was like, how do you do that? How do you get through college without really being able to read very well? And how yeah. did that happen? That was fascinating to me. But the, one of the things that I think really moves me the most is the teachers who reach out to me at this point. Because the teachers, again, there are variations, but for the most part, teachers just aren't really taught much of anything about this scientific research, or they're just not really, they get, they don't even sometimes know that they weren't taught anything. I mean, and I think that's why some of these particular ideas, some of these word solving strategies and some of the stuff that's embedded in the curriculum here in the United States, and it mm. sounds like in Australia, people really cling on to because the truth is they really weren't taught very much at all about how reading happens. So when they're given anything, they're like, oh yeah, the, the, yeah. I'll take that. Like, the, let me start doing that because suddenly you're like a first grade teacher. I mean, so many teachers have said to me and they're like, I'm a first grade teacher. Huh? I don't know how kids learn to read. Yeah. And they don't know how to teach it. And the, real, the thing that really moves me, I hear from so many teachers who've been teaching for five or 10 years, and then they have a child and their child struggles to learn to read. Yeah. And they've been a kindergarten or first or second grade teacher. And they realize, I don't know how to teach her how to read. And that's when the big aha moment is for them. So, Gosh. yeah. That's, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, really? It, it's like... Um, you know, surgeons qualifying, but not being able to do the surgery and, and just sort of telling people that they, they, they ought to walk more or I, I don't know. It, it's just a strange, and, and is this, do teachers tell you about the teacher preparation? Do they say, look, um, we, we had lessons on this. We were taught about this, but I forgot it or, or it wasn't a big thing. What, what, what's the, what sort of stories do people tell about how they were prepared to teach reading? They either talk about how they weren't really taught much of anything at all, or they were taught a bunch of different things. And it was yeah. sort of their job to choose what yeah. they, what worked best for them. It was very much this philosophy that you're going to need a lot of different approaches and a lot of different ideas. And you're going to have to either decide what's best for you or decide what's best in your school or decide what's best for your individual students. And of course, I think we have the, we're in the situation that you are in in Australia where we've kind of tasked teachers with this impossible job, which is that they're supposed to teach 25 six-year-olds and they're supposed to adapt their teaching to everyone's yeah. individual needs. And, and not only that, but they're supposed to design a lot of the lessons and make the curriculum. And even when schools spend a lot of money on some of these curriculum, it still relies a lot on teachers doing the planning, choosing the text shoot you know there's a lot of stuff that and that's one of the things they learn in their teacher preparation they learn how to do lesson planning kind of sort yeah. of kind of but they but you know so 
yeah, that's what teachers tell me uh, that they, and then, you know, and they learn a little bit of phonics. I mean, and then they do a little bit of phonics yeah. and they think, well, I'm doing it all. I am doing a little bit of phonics and I'm doing some vocabulary and we're doing some comprehension. We're doing the, they, they don't all learn about the national reading panel report, for example. And I, I don't even like to talk about that one so much because it's 20 years ago. There's so much yeah. more you could talk about since. Yeah. But, um, but I think that that report was kind of problematic because I think it has led us deeply astray. Um, it's led to this mentality, which happens in education, that if you just a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you check each box all kind of at the same time, yeah. it, like, again, it's like that, just put it in the box and poof, magic, out comes yeah. a reader without understanding that those like five essential components of reading, like one leads to another, they affect each other. There was a mm. reciprocal, you, you're not, you don't, you don't work on fluency with the five-year-old who doesn't yeah. know how to read any of the words yet. <laughs> you know? But if you, if you take a whole load of research, but it, 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 this is it though, isn't it? If you take a whole load of research, you'll identify factors that are relevant to reading. That's all you'll do. And you'll say, oh, these factors are relevant to reading. You've got to be able to do this, 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 and this. But it doesn't really tell you, it doesn't structure it. It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to put that together. Um, it just gives you some factors. And, and quite a lot of education research is correlational. Quite a lot that was in the reading panel report was experimental, but still, it's it's one thing at a time. We'll do because you, if you design an experiment, you can only change one thing at a time. So, well, this is important, and we'll do, and right. this is important, but it doesn't tell you how to necessarily put that all together, and that requires a kind of craft knowledge, which we should have as a teaching profession, and we should be passing on to each other, each new generation of teachers. But that that process seems to have gone wrong somewhere um and we we don't necessarily seem to do that or or see the see the value in doing that um and i i think that's quite curious um uh, and it's it's not even a recent thing uh, have you there's a book by um is I, I can't can never remember how never figure out how to say a first name jan Chul. Is it Jan Chul? Jean Chul? Jean Shaw? Jean Shaw, yeah. Jean Shaw, yes. Jean Shaw. Um, yes. And she, she wrote um, uh, The Academic Achievement Challenge. Yeah. And she, in that book, she talks about three sets, essentially, of um, government reports, a bit like the National Reading Panel. So the first one, I think, took place in the 60s, and she was involved in that, and she and found that the evidence supported systematic phonics instruction and then yeah, that was the great debate that she wrote in 1967 yeah and then yeah. um then she did a, a, it again um the 80s i think something like that yep, and i think it was in the 80s yep yeah and then again um in the early 2000s around the well it wouldn't have been the early 2000s um late 90s it was in the late 90s yeah, yeah. she died in the early 2000 early-ish 2000s yeah so it's not like this is new it's not like um the uh, National Reading Panel report came and told us something new that we didn't know. People have been doing reports like that for years and finding the same things. So what, what, what is it that's kind of getting in the way of translating that into practice in the classroom? What, what is it that people are telling you that's kind of blocking that process? You know, um, I have to say that I'm in increasingly thinking that a lot of it really has to do with the divide around direct instruction 
versus a more child-centered progressive constructivist approach yeah i think that the the fights about phonics were really a proxy for that fight yeah and i think what's happening now is that as you know people who are proponents of balanced literacy and you can have a zillion i don't have there's no one definition of that (laughs) but um uh you know there's plenty of people now who can show that they're doing phonics instruction and even phonemic awareness right now we can have lots of discussions about the best kind of phonics instruction how to approach it all that kind of stuff but like people can say that they're doing all those components but what but it's in the ocean of a system that is really um antagonistic to direct instruction yeah so if you look at the research on reading so you can sort of talk about the science of reading research but the the, the common denominator kind of in all of it, like what you said about the national reading panel, yeah. like when you're doing experimental studies, you can just take one piece and you, and, and you divide that yeah. off and you can, but really consistent in all of it is the direct and explicit nature of the instruction. Yeah. That's the thing. And yeah. here in the United States, there's a lot of people who are sort of now trying to do the science of reading, but they're fundamentally doing it in schools don't really, they aren't really set up to do direct instruction or people don't really believe in that where the routines and the use of time is not oriented around that. And there's not, a, and there's also not a lot of like knowledge building going on. Um, and so the, the question of how much bang you're gonna get for your buck of teaching kids the skills of reading K through two, if you don't then have like a curriculum and you don't have like stuff you really want the kids to know. I just think that there's a lot of things, it's, it's, it's nice to see that there's attention to the science of reading, but I think there are a lot of things in the way of it having a real measurable significant effect. It's this, um, so we had a debate here uh, a few years ago um, now. The phonics like, debate? Yeah. Oh, I uh, watched that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was supposed to be a debate between people that believe in systematic phonics instruction and I think it's very interesting. The other side, apparently, we're going to argue for teaching phonics in context. But when they came out, as you've seen, if you watch the debate, they, they basically uh, argued against teaching phonics. They did the whole, you know, English is far too irregular to, to teach, um, you know, and they had a go at decodable books. And, and it, so when people tell me, um, yeah, we teach phonics, but we teach it in context or uh, as it, as it arises, I have two reactions. One, I think actually, are, are these people, is this a cover for being antiphonics, like it seemed to be in that debate? And then my other reaction is, well, phonics in context is not what came out of the National Reading Panel report. It doesn't, it's not what comes out of the research. It's, um, I'm a big advocate. It's interesting that you should talk about explicit teaching. So I'm a big advocate for explicit teaching more generally. I'm a maths teacher. And, I think, you know, senior maths should be taught explicitly. Um, and what I often hear is um, people say, oh, yes, um, we've read the evidence. Explicit teaching is is effective. And, and we include that in our inquiry-based learning approach. And you're like, well, no, you, you can't. Like, explicit teaching is a systematic uh, program method, gradual release from the teacher to the student. You can't sort of include it in inquiry-based learning if you are whatever that is whatever that looks like if it's like a mini lecture or whatever it is you're thinking 
that's not the explicit teaching that's supported by this large body of evidence. So you can't then say, oh yeah, we've seen the evidence on explicit teaching, we're incorporating into this inquiry-based learning approach, because you're not now, now incorporating the kind of explicit teaching that has the evidence base. Right, so the question is, why is there such a, why is there so much um, non-enthusiasm? What's the opposite? <laughs> why, is there, why, is there, why is there so much disdain for direct and explicit teaching. Yeah. And uh, I had that disdain as a parent. So really? when I, I think so. I didn't know very much. Of, I mean, my, like I said, my oldest is 20. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, I mean, here in the United States, my kids went to our local elementary school. And, uh, you know, it, it felt very sort of, uh, we, we live in a very large school system, a very good school system, I'm putting yeah. quotes, because, you know, there's a lot of different kids do, there's a lot of inequality, inequity. Yeah. So it's, um, as in any school system, it's a lot about what the kids are bringing to school and not what the school is necessarily doing for them. Yeah. But like, I've been very happy overall with my kids' education, but when they were little, I, 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 I didn't really like the feel of the elementary school too much. It felt very sort of bureaucratic. There was a lot of standardized testing. You know, I had a yeah. lot of the, like, I, it's not really what I wanted for my little children. I wanted yeah. them to play and I wanted them to have fun and I wanted there to be art all over the walls and I wanted them to do a lot of art. Yeah. And for a little while, we sent them to a private school for that reason. We, wow. we bought... Uh, we like a, a lovely, absolutely lovely school. I really like, it's a lovely school, but it does not do direct teaching and it yeah. did not teach them how to read. Yeah. And they learned just fine. They were fine. They don't have any learning disabilities yeah. and they had all the advantages and we didn't have to hire tutors. It came to them. Um, but I, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, like we paid a lot of money because that's what we wanted. Mm. And now I look back and I think, Huh. Like I, I, my kids have not gotten like a lot of knowledge from their education. I yeah. mean, they know a lot. They yeah. they read well or whatever, but they have not ever had an education that was sort of focused on systematically building their knowledge about anything. And it's they're okay because they get yeah. a lot of knowledge in the rest of their life. My husband is a, has a PhD and is a professor and I'm a journalist. Yeah. There's like this, this house yeah. is teeming with knowledge. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff I wish they knew that I, that I don't know, that I didn't teach them. But if I, if I was gonna, if I like, you know, when I have grandchildren, I'm probably gonna tell my sons to really look for a school where their kids are really gonna learn a lot of stuff. I wonder where that comes from and I, I think it's very interesting you'd say that as a parent because you see, you do see these narratives a lot against standardized testing and um and standardized testing is there for a reason i think some people think it's this horrible neoliberal uh, conspiracy against childhood or something but it's there because um uh, governments various governments of different political persuasions across the world have said well we need to know what's going we need to know whether our policies are being successful whether kids are learning or not and um, I, I think that I wonder whether, as parents, somehow, sometimes we take um, things as a given that we shouldn't take as a given. So we think, oh, absolutely, they'll learn to read and they'll learn about geography and all that sort of stuff. So I want to put them in a context where they do all that, but they also, there's a lot of art all over the walls and absolutely. they have a good time. But yes. we discount that crucial bit of the learning to read and the learning the geography and all that business because we just 
assume that's the case. And I link that to my own PhD study uh, in cognitive load theory, where um, oh, I, very, very briefly, and you, you probably know all this, but um, it uses a model of the mind where you've got a, a very limited working memory, which is what you're conscious of, but an effectively unlimited um, long-term memory. Backup and, drive. <laughs> yeah, but things that you bring in from long-term memory, um, you, you can only process about four items in your working memory, but, but you, an entire schema of ideas can, is like one item if you've got it in your long-term memory. So you can process these really, it's what makes us amazing and makes us to be able to do these complicated things. But you do it effortlessly. And because it's so effortless, pulling this stuff from long-term memory and using it, I think we don't realize how significant that is and how hard it is to get that stuff in the long-term memory in the first place. We assume it comes easy to us that, oh yeah, I just know about the Romans or whatever. And, and we just assume because it's so easy and effortless for us, the curse of knowledge, it's hard to empathize with the child that doesn't have those schemas and can't pull that um, knowledge in. And so we, we don't invest enough in that process because we just assume that that's a given, that it's a natural. And it's almost as if that's the way we've structured the teaching of reading uh, under, under that assumption, you know, surround the kids with books. And There's this strange kind of irony that I think about a lot, which is I think that the resistance to direct teaching has to do with wanting to be more child-centered and play-based and all that. Um, and so these ways of teaching reading come in under the guise of being able to do that where kids are at stations and there's not a lot of the teacher standing in front of the room and they're teaching each other and they're doing activities and they're building their critical thinking skills by having book clubs together or whatever. And I, yeah. you know, but this is happening when they're six. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing about that is that that is supposedly more child centered, but that approach to teaching assumes that children that, that becoming an expert at something is by mimicking what experts do rather yeah. than what we know about what it takes from, to go from being like a novice to an expert. So when I look at a sort of typical balanced literacy classroom and kind of the way that time is, seems to be used, these long literacy blocks, I mean, here in the United States, especially mm -hmm. at schools that are more disadvantaged where they're having a harder time, there could be two hours or more. There could be two blocks a day dedicated to reading instruction. So there's this huge amount of time but one of the things that I've started to realize is like, you look at how the kids are, that number one, it, for a lot of kids, it's very confusing. Like no one's really, they're just kind of, they're being given books and sort of pointing at pictures and being told to kind of figure it out. And they spend a lot of their time on their own and learning from each other. And I think for a lot of kids, it's just like, wait, well, this is just so confusing. And then the other thing is that I think it's boring for a lot yeah. of them. <laughs> like, I think we're boring the hell out of our little kids in a lot of these because we're not actually teaching them stuff. And we're really assuming, I mean, this is an anecdote that I put on Twitter once and people went wild and I was like, oh, okay, maybe so maybe I shouldn't give this anecdote here maybe to your listeners. But there's this woman in California and she was trying to figure out this whole balanced literacy thing, like what's up with balanced literacy, what it's all about. And she was in this classroom and you know, the kids were five years old and they were going off to their independent reading groups for 20 minutes, they're gonna pick a book and they're gonna you know, read and it looks great. It's a, a high poverty school in, in, mm. in Oakland, California and 
this looked great. There are bean bags. There's tons of books in the school. It's great. So the kids are, you know, picking their nose and the books are upside down. They're five. Yeah. Um, you know, and so she goes up to this little girl and says, what are you reading, honey? And the little girl says to her, I can't fucking read. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a perfect antidote for, a, anecdote for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, I can't read. Can you? Which is like this little girl is basically like, can you help me? Like, I yeah. want to learn how to read. I mean, a five-year-old wants to learn how to read, but also it was just kind of a waste of her time, really. Yeah. You know, like, why not teach her how to read rather than just giving her these books? I mean, you know, it's looking at books and understanding the concept of a word and all that. That's, yes, absolutely, that stuff needs to be done. But if you're like, if this is the time for reading instruction, <laughs> or even if you're assessing how a child is reading, we're just using the... We're, we're using tools that yeah that aren't going to get us there it's like the, you know when they're teaching a kid what the the blurb on the back of a book means and why it's there and it's a summary of the book and you, but the kid can't read like surely, surely we should back up a little bit before we start teaching these kind of meta concepts right. about yeah we had right. a, and a, a meta concept will make much more sense eventually they don't <laughs> yeah. actually have to take that much time with the meta concept i mean it's just like that okay that's a pretty quick and easy lesson yeah it's, um, we had a thing here, um, and I think this is indicative of, and I worry that it's cyclical, for the reasons I said about Jean Chawl earlier and her research, I worry that this is all cyclical, but we had um, something called L3 in New South, New South Wales. I'm not in New South Wales, I'm in Victoria, but um, people were telling me about L3, so I, I write my blog and various people get in touch and they say, have a look at L3. And so I looked into it, and it's this program that the New South Wales Department of Education put together for teaching early literacy and it was in pilot schools I think it started about 10 years ago and then it was kind of moved out of the pilot schools and then all the schools could um, take hold of it and I, I, I started to read and I, I immediately saw the problem with this program which was that the teacher would be working with a small group of mm, five-year-olds you know three or four of them doing something that made a nod to things like phonics and phonemic awareness, just sort of nodded to that. But we'd be working with these three or four kids and the rest of the kids would be doing other activities. And as a senior maths teacher, you know, teaching 17, 18 year olds, um, I would struggle to coordinate that because if I was talking to three or four of them, I wouldn't be convinced that the rest of them would necessarily be spending their time profitably. And these are motivated 17 or 18 year olds. And so then you look at the, you look at this program that's being rolled out and you think, well, how could that possibly work? And of course, teachers are telling me, well, it doesn't work, but someone, some bureaucrat or academic or coalition of bureaucrats and academics have got together and developed this program. Well, I, I was writing about it in 2017. And New South Wales have this thing called the Centre for Education, Statistics and Evaluation. They just released a report two, three weeks ago, something like that, where they evaluated this L3 and they said it doesn't work. Um, and the New South Wales Department are now defunding it and they're going to... But we should learn from those things. And we shouldn't really have introduced something like L3 in the first place because we should have already known from previous attempts at something similar that that won't work. Or even if we didn't, from sheer common sense that you can't teach five-year-olds in that way, 
uh, and we keep going round and round and round. But the problem is that, that, that people ask, well, what's another way to teach five-year-olds? So then the, yeah. I, the idea in their mind is then like, it's all whole class instruction. And so yeah. people don't like that. And probably that's not probably a great idea either. Because yeah. we do know that five-year-olds are at very different places, right? And they probably do need to be broken up into some small groups to get the phonics or whatever that's what they really need. Because kids really are in a lot of these schools at different places with this stuff. So, you know, these, these particular routines that come along with like a, the, the program that you're describing, I think yeah. des describes a lot of what, what happens in a balanced literacy classroom. And the, the thing is, I think those things really like meet the needs of teachers. Because number one, if they are going to work with small groups of children and it's one teacher and 20 or 25 kids, how are you going to do that? Unless you set up stations where kids are basically spending the majority of their time yeah. working with each other or on their own. And so, so, you know, we've got two problems, which is one, no one likes the idea of whole, whole class instruction all day for kindergartners. There probably could be more whole class instruction for kindergartners that would be effective for a lot of them, yeah. but you do need a way to do groups. But at least the way things are structured here in the United States, a lot of times it is one teacher or maybe an assistant for part of the day or maybe a student teacher. So you, it's like, we really like we in talking about this we have to present like a salute some of these these routines are popular because they solve problems that teachers have yeah and they think that that's what they need so the question i guess even about this program in new south, south wales so what are they replacing it with what are they going to do instead well this is a good point and i don't <laughs> i don't know exactly but i i think that the you know, I'm happy with little kids having 10 minutes of whole class explicit instruction and then having a break. And I don't think you need necessarily to force them through um, whole class explicit instruction all the time, all day. But as you've alluded to, the efficiency of it is such that a little bit of it um, and then they can go off and do something else, maybe something that's not in the play. literacy block, maybe, maybe some art. Some Maybe, maybe, maybe they, they could can play. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Which we do know that it would be great for five-year-olds to have a decent amount of time in their school day to play. And the idea that their literacy block is two hours where they're going around to these stations. What if their literacy block was, yeah, 10 or 15 minutes of whole class instruction and then playing while the teacher works with groups of kids. And rather than sending a five-year-old off to read on her own, where she's just getting frustrated and irritated because she can't do it. And sort of like this five-year-old sort of sees, th sees through this, like, I don't think this is a good use of my time. Can someone please teach me how to read? Could it, could it be you, lady? Could you help me? <laughs> do, you think, do you think, and I wonder about this one, do you think individualism, like a, a, fetish, a fetishization of individualism sort of sits behind some of this? Because... You hear a lot of people say, well, um, we can't use a one-size-fits-all. I need to adapt to my individual learners. And, and then you have these bogus ideas like learning styles, which hopefully no one still subscribes to. But they, oh, all but they of, do. But they <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah, yes. well. So do you think it's individualism or do you think it's – is that just part of the picture? Hmm. Good question. I don't know. What do you think? I don't well, know. I think partly it's a romantic view of childhood. Um, yeah. So yeah. it sort of we've come down. And people don't know of these people generally, like um, newly trained teachers might don't go around and start talking about Rousseau or someone like that. 
but a lot of these ideas have come from that philosophical tradition. Yes. But I'm not sure whether, I'm not sure where the, this, so I've written a lot about differentiation, you, you, this idea that we've got kids in a room and we've got to do, plan different things for the different kids. And it kills a lot of teachers because they, you know, I've, I've lived in a shared house with them and they're, they're up until three o'clock in the morning producing five or six different versions of every resource. And because they're not actually given a program, they've got to, as you say, they've got to design it all themselves. And yes, every teacher differentiates to a certain extent. There will be, you know, when I'm teaching my maths, um, there'll be some kids who I will go over something with again, or I'll go around and I'll give them some individual help. Whereas where other students are doing some exercises, that sort of thing. So everyone does a little bit of that because obviously kids are different and um, some get stuck on things that others don't. But this idea of completely different resources for different kids in the class doing completely different things, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you end up in the, um, you know, the Lily's group in kindergarten, then in, in the next grade, you're going to be in an equivalent group because you didn't learn the stuff that the other kids learned. And then you're gradually getting this. Um, and I just wonder, it seems to me that it's such a, a bad idea <laughs> on many levels that there must be a, a philosophical underpinning from somewhere where this comes from that, that makes us, it's almost like a moral, like when I interview um, graduate teachers, it's the first thing they talk about is differentiation. They see it as this moral and ethical yes. duty to, to differentiate for the, and, and it can mean so many different things and it can be quite negative. I, I just, I, I suppose I'm just speculating on where it all comes from. Yeah. And it ends up in this situation in a lot of schools in the United States, um, which should actually be really shocking. And it doesn't seem to shock us, which is that, kids often eventually end up in these various kinds of gifted and talented programs or yeah. higher tracks. And when you actually look, I mean, this happens at the high school where my children go. Yeah. What happens is that the kids who are in these gifted and talented programs are getting different content. Yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, it, 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 so it presumes that like by the age of 14 or 15 or nine or seven, that there's like, stuff that some kids can learn and there's and other kids are never going to really learn that it's not it's not like the more direct instruction model which is like kids might be at different places in terms of their mastery of the stuff but they're all going to learn the same things yeah. and we just don't it's so it's so I think you're right. I think that the idea that different kids need different things, including different content and everyone needs to be differentiated is all kind of in the, the rosy glow of individualism and also like equity somehow, like this is the way to make the society more equal, but it actually does the precise opposite. Yeah. We'll make kids more equal more by, by teaching them different things. It, it, it's yeah. a strange idea. It's, it's weird that we don't see that as like just a problem. Like, just see your basic sort of gifted and talented program in an American high school and be like, whoa, how did the education system end up with this as the destination? It, it doesn't make any sense. No, and I don't, think, I don't think we'll get to the bottom of it either. But it, it, it's, it, when you look at it from the outside, it does seem strange. Uh, have you, obviously you've been reporting on this for, for a few years now, and you've taken a line that... Um, I would su suspect isn't always popular with uh, 
education professors and people like that. Have you received much pushback? And, and if you have, what, what are the sorts of things that, that people have, have said in that pushback? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I haven't got a tremendous amount of pushback directly. Maybe yeah. I'll invite it right now. I mean, I've had some. Some people yeah. have like written to me directly or called me or asked to talk to me, and I have. Yeah. And most of that comes from the school of education world, for the yeah. most part. Sort of professors in schools of education. I think there's a lot of other people who've, you know, written things not directly to me. Yeah. Um, and it mostly comes in the form of, well, I don't know. It, 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 it most, so it mostly comes in the form of people who have been really advocating or believing in something different. So they have kind of skin in a different game. So yeah. this is sort of threatening to them. So I think that's one kind of resistance. And what goes along with that resistance is sort of the my science, your science thing. Yeah. And, you know, and this is very complicated. Like what is science and what counts as evidence and all that. And I understand that this is a complex but question, but... But the, the, the truth is, as I started this conversation, there's this gigantic body of evidence that has, for the most part, been generated outside of the schools of education in the United States of America yeah. by cognitive scientists and psychologists and others that now has just truly, like starting back when this body of research was really beginning to be robustly built in like the 1970s, like they started by kind of questioning some of the assumptions of, of what reading is and how it develops and how it's being taught. And they found in a number of cases, the assumptions to be incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> and so they basically, and so the problem is that that's the tension. Like some of the science of reading stuff directly says like some of the ways that we're teaching kids to read is really based on a faulty assumption. Yeah. And so that's a problem um, for a lot of people. But, um, you know, I think, one thing that I think is a true element here is there's active resistance by some people who have a reason to advocate sort of against this. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people at this point who are professors in schools of education who just don't know about this research. They just don't know. And um, I don't know if you saw the, the International Literacy Association's um, publication reading research quarterly. They have this whole um, special issue on the science yeah. of reading. I don't know if you've read any of that. Yeah. It was really interesting. There was a webinar the other day and what one of the editors of that special issue essentially said is that this editing this volume had really opened her eyes because she thought the science of reading was just phonics. And she uh -huh. didn't really, she didn't really understand. She thought it was a big partisan fight about that. And she, and, and this has really opened her eyes to the fact that it's about a lot more than that. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. This is one of the editors of reading research quarterly. Um, Yes, so that's... I think at this point, like just considering like the people who are in schools of education now who are at the tops of their field yeah. were themselves sort of brought up at the time of more whole language, right? Like they, a lot of them just don't know this. So I, I just think we shouldn't discount that. And I think that's a positive development in all this because it means that if you can find ways in of getting people curious and getting people interested in this, they can be like, oh, huh, I didn't know that that's interesting. That's kind of different than what I thought. And maybe I should consider that. And I think that's happening kind of yeah. like all over the country right now. I don't know what, where that's going to go, Yeah. but I think it's happening right now. And it's especially happening among teachers. I mean, teachers are more, you know, I, I mean, I think every teacher wants to teach his or her kids how to read. And so 
I just hear from so many teachers. I mean, in fact, I was going to, I got this email just today. I was going to tell you about this because yeah, I get every day. So this is a former teacher. Um, and this is basically the kind of thing I hear all the time. Before I learned about the science of reading, I was desperate to understand guided reading. I spent a lot of money on all kinds of books and teachers pay teachers items. And I sought out trainings in an effort to understand it. It wasn't that I was skeptical of the approach. I just thought there was something wrong with me for yeah. not fully understanding it. If only I were doing it correctly, I thought my students could be having success. Now that I've learned effective ways of teaching reading, it just feels so right. It totally makes sense. And so I think, so anyway, that, that's the yeah. kind of stuff I hear all the time. And teachers blame themselves. They're like, oh, there's a bunch of my kids that were never really getting it. And I guess that was me. It's either, it's either me, I'm doing something wrong, or it's them. They must have disabilities or they're from poor families and no one read to them enough and there's nothing we can do. This is a very common story. I mean, my own experience, I'm not a reading teacher, but uh, I thought that the, the, the way you taught science, for instance, was um, constructivist. So kids did investigations, figured things out. And um, fairly early on, I realized that they weren't figuring the things out that they were supposed to figure out. And I would resort to explicit teaching and I felt very guilty about it. I felt like I was doing it wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But I think this idea of the science of reading is even controversial, isn't it? But I don't think the critics of the concept of a science of reading are going to get very far. Um, it's, at, in the academy, um, I'm debating epistemology and whether, whether science can be applied to the social sphere and all this sort of stuff is quite a, a sport. But when it comes to teachers, I don't think they're really interested in that. I, I, I think, think if you, yeah, they want to know what's Yeah, and you were talking earlier too, like I think, you know, it's true that a lot of the sort of stuff in the science of reading, you know, there's this distinction between the science of reading yeah. and the sort of translational part, the science of teaching reading. Not that, not that teaching is ex exactly a science, it's no. more complex than that. But it's like the science of reading is very clear. The science of teaching reading, not as clear, like not as clear. There's plenty of stuff to sort of, think yeah. about and talk about in terms of implementation and all that but and, and there are some people who will say well the basic science really doesn't apply it doesn't apply to teaching like people are taking things from the basic science and then making assumptions about how to teach but i think the the, the basic science like the basic way that the science of reading helps explain how reading happens yeah is incredibly helpful to teachers it doesn't it does not tell them like so then teach exactly this in this way but it's a huge aha moment for those teachers who really just didn't know. They, 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 they didn't know about the simple view of reading. The simple view of reading, you know, gets, obviously doesn't say that reading is simple. It just no. breaks reading comprehension into these two parts that totally interact with each other. Yep. <laughs> There's this reciprocal relationship and it is so important. But when, when teachers learn about that, when teachers learn about something like Scarborough's Rope, which is really sort of a, a more a way of understanding, unpacking this, the simple view of reading. Yep. The teachers I talk to are just kind of like, whoa, if someone had just told me about that. And then people are like, oh, the simple view of reading, you can't use that to guide instruction. But if you teach teachers that, it helps them understand the why of what they're doing. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of teachers don't have. They don't know, like they're, they get a phonics program, they're teaching phonics, but they don't know why. Yeah, we have this problem in education uh, where you, you develop a successful intervention and then you try and scale it and uh, it doesn't work at scale. And then you say, oh, well, it's because the teachers didn't implement it properly. 
And of course, teachers will always adapt whatever program you give them because um, you know things change. It's 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 a wet Thursday afternoon, and the kids have come in and they're feeling a bit different, and so we've we've changed the program slightly. But the the point is, when teachers change those programs and adapt them, do they go with the grain of the understanding that underpins that program, or do they go with their previous pre-existing understandings? So if you teach them something like the simple view of reading. Um, and then they are adapting and improvising on the hoof as, as things change, their improvisations will be in line with that understanding and not in line with something else. So I think you, you can go two ways. So you can either completely script the lessons like Engelman did, so that there's no way you can deviate from the, the plan, or um, where that's not feasible, you really do have to build this professional knowledge so that teachers can take the programs and when they do use them in real life they can they can make them sort of fit their understanding um yeah I, and i think that's really important and it's things like uh, that's what so i'm involved in research ed which is this sort of group of international conferences that yeah and and that's what we're trying to do i suppose is just give teachers that knowledge so that uh, they understand what sits behind this stuff I, I hear a lot of people say um you know when i talk about say the uh, um, working memory, long-term memory model of the mind. People say, yeah, well, it's not as simple as that. There are uh, sensory buffers and all this sort of stuff. And I say, yeah, but it's a model. It's, it's, right. a, it's not supposed to be a full and true accurate description of the brain in all its complexity. It's a useful model to understand certain aspects of learning. And the simple view of reading is the same. At, you know, Okay, there might be, it's extraordinarily well verified by evidence, but there might yeah, be areas that... Yeah, yeah, 90 to 99% <laughs> of the variation in reading comprehension is explained by it. There are very yeah. few things that can do that. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. There's, some, there's something else going on for some people, and it's probably something to do with attention, executive functioning, probably has to do with the differences between written and spoken language. Those are really important. But I think that's actually captured in the simple view of reading. People say that it's not. But if you think, if you think of language comprehension yeah. broad, broadly, like, yes, you have to understand there is a difference between spoken and written language, and that's the thing you've got to learn how to do. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of, the, one of my um, things I would emphasize about the simple view, uh, I've been quite influenced by reading uh, Edie Hirsch and Dan Willingham, on the the importance of background knowledge and i think some people might look at the simple view and think oh language comprehension it's all about vocabulary but it's it's actually more complicated it's about being able to build a mental model of what's going on and that requires background knowledge and if we're spending three hours a day in literacy blocks not reading books because we can't read instead of learning you know where kenya is and you know about key uh, points in history and things like that, then we're not building that background knowledge. But you know, I don't know how you guys do it in Australia, but it's basically the same, you know, we have this problem in the United States, which is that we have not decided, we can't decide, it's too political, and it, it is political, mm. and there are so many values involved when you decide what's the knowledge that you want kids to learn. That is really hard. So we we've decided not to decide in a very gigantic way. We've decided yeah. just to not go there at all. So now we have all these high stakes tests and then these like NAEP tests that are telling us about how kids are doing with reading, but they're not measuring anything in particular that we've taught the kids. Yeah. And so 
it's not a very good measure of how well kids are reading, even though that, but, and so that's what everyone uses. Well, it doesn't tell us anything about how kids are reading, but the NAEP scores are so awful that even if you want to argue a little bit about how, what the test is measuring, we've still got more than half of black kids in America who can't read on a basic level on the fourth grade NAEP test and a third, more than a third of kids overall at a basic level, which is a pretty low level. Um, so anyway, I mean, I don't know how you guys do it in Australia, but that it's like there's there's so many things in the syst the bigger system yeah. that we can't kind of touch or deal with that are going to get in the way of our efforts to really achieve maximum results with teaching people to read. And it has to do with this that we that we're not doing a knowledge based curriculum and that we can't decide. And I can't tell anyone how to, I recognize how difficult that is. And it has to do with the fact that it, the ocean that everyone swims in is anti-explicit teaching in a big way. And that's the only thing that we really have so much robust evidence for. That's yeah. what's so shocking. I don't know, I read something the other day that like the true direct instruction model that maybe three or 4% of American schools use that. And I'm not saying every school should use it, but there's mm. a lot of evidence behind that approach. And we're using some stuff in schools that has no evidence behind it. Even though our federal law says you should have evidence, yeah. there are things being used that don't even have a single study to show. And, and there's plenty of good stuff that's never going to have a good study. There's plenty of good stuff that probably works and they're never going to have enough money yeah. to certainly to have a randomized controlled trial. Like we, I mean, there are tons of good stuff that's never going to have that kind of evidence. Anyway. Yeah. And I think um, that, that's interesting. Uh, you touch on, I suppose, to summarize, it's politically easier to, to, to do what we do than to change to something that's a little bit more evidence-based. And you said earlier, you know, you said you were talking about the surgeon, the analogy of yeah. the surgeon. And so like, how can we get away with it in, in education? And I think the problem is that education is a result of so many things. There's so much complexity to it that we can excuse away that it's not any one thing. And here's the heartbreaking thing that I've heard from teachers is when you're like a kindergarten or a first or a second grade teacher, you may, it may look like these kids are reading and doing okay. And you don't necessarily know what mm. happens when they get to third or fourth grade. Some of the big aha moments for teachers have been the teachers who were like teaching second grade. And then in the same school, they got moved to fourth grade. Yeah. And they're like, here's the kids I had in second grade. And now I'm seeing in fourth grade that they can't really read. So I think that's like, the, that's why the surgeon example is one thing. It's kind of like life or death. You like fix someone's gallbladder or not. Yeah. But in education, it's not so clear. So it's much easier, it's easier to take the easy way out that's having devastating consequences on some people. And yet we kind of don't see the consequences. It's like no one's particularly accountable for it because it's not, it's not the same as going in and having surgery and either living or dying, even though how well a kid learns to read when they're little actually can have close to life and death kinds of consequences for people. Yeah. Which is kind of bleak. You don't see it. It's 20 years later. Yeah. Which is kind of bleak, but I want to end on a note on something of something happy, a note of optimism, because I think well, I, I've talked about this cycle. Um, and I, I think we do have a chance of breaking it. I think your reporting is part of it. I think the internet is part of it. I think teachers now, uh, when I was uh, cutting my teeth as a teacher, the only other teachers I knew were, were the ones I worked with. And, and we would just sort of gossip about the power structures in our school. And that's what we did. We didn't really talk about education very much. 
but now I can talk to American teachers, American journalists, uh, professors in the UK. Um, I can talk to them directly through uh, social media. Um, I can blog. We, we can um, exchange ideas and we can set up things like research ed and we can talk directly to each other. So I do think that um, there are political solutions to some of these problems. Um, I've got an idea about how how you would decide the curriculum and it would require a, a, a group of people getting together and making these difficult decisions and satisfying no group in particular, but you know, having a mechanism for that. But I, I'm under no illusion that that's gonna happen anytime soon because it's, it's a difficult political issue. But what we can perhaps do is start to build things from the ground up, from the grassroots, um, and we need to push against the um, push against the, the the structures that prevent us innovating. We need to push against those, and we need to communicate with each other um, and talk about what works and and try and get those ideas out there. Like you say, there are the ideologues perhaps out there who who want to question whether it's legitimate to talk about a science of reading or or who are so invested in uh, in a particular way of going about things. But a lot of it is about a lack of knowledge and there's a, there's lots we can do about that yep i think so i think that's true i think that's true and we live in this um oh, we live in this time where knowledge is a difficult thing right because there's so much knowledge now you yeah. can find whatever you want from to back up your beliefs and we're living in this uh, you know ironic moment where we're sort of like inundated with knowledge so no one kind of knows anything or you can choose your knowledge or whatever but i think when it comes to this question just going back to this very basic question yeah. of teaching like little kids how to read again i think the 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 optimism is in the fact that teachers want to be able to do this yeah and that when they learn about this almost all of them are like, whoa, like I, okay, I, and I can challenge anyone listening here. I hear from so many teachers who go from a sort of balanced literacy or sort of a make your own kind of way of teaching and they learn about the science and they start doing that and they sort of convert. I haven't, and again, it's because maybe they wouldn't be telling me, I haven't heard of a conversion the other way. No. I no. never have. So if someone knows of a conversion the other way, please tell me. Now, some people will say like, well, we did, you know, really boring phonics or whatever, and that, that, that's the conversion to whole language. But again, it's like this stuff can, all this stuff can be done not well. But I think what we know at this point is that this stuff can be done well, and it doesn't have to be drill and kill and boring and awful, and it can be really exciting. And I've been in a lot of classrooms where like, you know, these little five-year-olds who are being taught to read, they're just so excited about it. It's fun. And it's fun for the teachers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time today. I think um, the people listening will find what you had to say fascinating um, and yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. I've watched the sun rise on you as this interview has gone on. The sun. <laughs> so we went, we went like now it is sunny where you are. <laughs> it is yeah, early it is. in the morning for you and late in the day for me. Yeah, yes. I am uh, happy. It was really nice to be here. It was a nice conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.